Welcome to episode 247 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Susan, Mary, Debbie, and Eileen. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Susie, Mary, Debbie, and Eileen, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. Today I want to share with you a talk by Nancy S. She's speaking in 1987 on the topic of negative into positive. She uses some language in in this talk describing her son that feels out of date today, not language that I would use now, but it was 30 years ago. Thank you, Jody. Well, it's finally this morning. I was thinking as I got up that um, Nina asked me. I think I've heard every speaker that got up here say this, Nina. She, she asked me to do this talk months and months ago, and I said, sure. You know, that's a long way off. And, you know, as with many things, they do come here, even if you live one day at a time. They finally do get here. And um, I don't know how. I guess I don't think I had a whole lot of choice about the topic. I think you just told me the topic. The topic is <laughs> turning turning negatives into positives. Um, let me start out by telling you that my name is Nancy. I live in Memphis, and um, I go to lots of meetings. I go to uh, IDAA spouses meeting. I go to a caduceus spouses meeting. I go to plain old ordinary wonderful Al-Anon meetings, and. Um, I decided that I wouldn't be as scared as I usually am because y'all are just like me. And why should I be scared of me? Although I've done that for a long time. Um, And I got up this morning with the idea that I'm supposed to talk for at least 30 minutes. Do y'all know what that's like? I usually go to meetings and I keep looking at my watch and thinking, I don't want to talk too long. I don't want to talk too long. And I was told I'm supposed to talk 30 minutes. And my husband sitting over here said I could probably talk all day. <laughs> but, you know, it's different when you get up there and you know you're supposed to. There's just a, a real difference in attitude. <laughs> I want you all to think about some of the experiences in your life in the past and today, in the present, that um, you started out being fairly certain they were negative that there wasn't anything good and positive that could come out of what you were going through. And I want you to think about how so many of those experiences that you started out thinking were so horrible and how can anybody live through this and I'll never survive and why this happened to me and how somehow as you look back, if you're like me, and you figured out that um, you wouldn't be the person that you are today if you hadn't experienced those perhaps negative, unpleasant experiences, and um, that you wouldn't have chosen them, perhaps. If you're like me, I wanted to be happy. 
And I wanted everything to go just right, and just right was the way that I wanted it to go. There wasn't much question about that. And um, yet, I can truthfully say, as I stand up here right now, that I know that I wouldn't be the person that I am. I know that I wouldn't have grown. I know that I wouldn't have the maturity that I have today had I not gone through a lot of those experiences that I cried over and wanted to crawl in bed under the sheets and stay there over, that I couldn't have um, gotten here today and feel as fulfilled and with some measure of serenity had I not gone down that road. And um, when I get through, I'd like for us to share. I'd like to hear what you all have to say uh, about some of the experiences that you've had that you've come to believe were real necessary to your growth. I was trying to come up with some things that we could all somehow relate to in the world that we live in uh, in terms of negatives and positives. And I came up with two show business personalities. <laughs> I came up with Barbara Streisand. And um, what's obvious about Barbara Streisand to me, it was when I first saw her, was that she had a big nose. And she didn't look like a movie star. And she wasn't gorgeous. But she was definitely who she was. And she didn't, she seemed to be okay with that. And okay enough not to go have her nose operated on and changed. And I thought, you know, that's a person who took something that um, a lot of this uh, playboy bunny mentality world that we're living in would say, you know, get rid of that. And she didn't. So I thought of her. And the only other show business person I thought about was Mel Tillis. Do you all know who Mel Tillis is? Y'all are country music fans in here. Mel Tillis is a country music uh, singer. And he sings great. But when he talks, he cannot talk without stuttering. And um, he was, I think he was probably the first person I ever saw on television that could sit there and stutter on The Tonight Show and make it seem okay, make it seem funny, and even feel good about himself stuttering. And that was amazing to me. And um, I remembered going through elementary school with kids that stuttered, and when they were called on to read out loud, it was, you know, it was just very uncomfortable for everybody in the classroom. And here's this person that took that lifelong problem and decided to turn it into something he could use that would be, um, you know, a positive. And he's done it. And the interesting thing is that he comes on television and he talks about it and he laughs about it and it's okay. And what better way to turn a negative into a positive than to be able to sit back and laugh? I was thinking about that when we were talking last night about the speaker and um, some of the things some of the stories I've heard from alcoholics about their during their drinking days that at the time just aren't funny at all. That just just tend, you know, to cry over. And we've all had those experiences. And yet how wonderful it is to get to the point that some of those things that were so terrible and traumatic are actually funny. Did you ever think you'd get there? And isn't it wonderful and it doesn't it I feel so peaceful with that um 
idea that, yeah, it's okay to laugh about things that hurt. In fact, it's wonderful. And um, letting go of some of those that pain and that negative uh, that negative attitude. And one of the best ways to do it is to laugh. And I think that's what he was telling us last night. At least that's the message I got. I guess when I think about the positives and negatives, the main word that comes to my mind is is attitude. And um, there are so many things that happen to all of us in our daily lives that we really can't change. But we can change how we think about them and how we feel about them and what we're going to do in our approach to living. And um, the idea that we all ended up here in Lexington, Kentucky today, August 1st, 1987, in an Al-Anon meeting, was something that uh, I bet 5, 10, 15 years ago would, if you had told me that, I would have thought, no, not me. I wouldn't be able to do that, let alone be coming up here and standing in the front of a group to talk. And I think Al-Anon and AA both are such a strong message. There's such a message in there that, um, you know, we can take some of these life experiences and turn them into to a positive way to live that, um, that I didn't have before. I didn't have a positive pro- program. I didn't have a 12-step program that, was, that could tell me what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to do it. I was so directed from everyone else, from a little child, to do this and do this and do this, and then you'll be happy, and then everything will be okay, and then I would do it, and I wasn't. And I didn't understand that. And um, here we are at an Al-Anon meeting that some of us have traveled quite a ways to get to, and lots of different ways we've traveled. And it is a positive experience, I, I guess. Most of us, at least I do, leave here. I've left the last two IDAA meetings I've gone to with such a feeling of excitement and peace and just such positive feelings that um, I can do some things differently. I can change the way I'm living and reacting. And I do have that choice to do that. Or I can sit back and continue to do some of that old negative stuff of feeling sad and blaming other people and wondering why nobody does the things I want them to. I uh, had this real strong feeling when I first came to Al-Anon that I think I'm going to make it <laughs> 30 minutes. <laughs> that all those things that I had heard all my life they, they, y'all were just going to take them away. And they weren't, I thought they were so wonderful and marvelous. And they just weren't. I mean, the biggest thing that comes to my mind is think about other people. Don't be so self-centered. So I did it. I thought about other people all the time. And I, and, and the other, one of the other strong messages was, Consider the other person's feelings. And then after you've done that, maybe you can think about you. That wasn't even verbalized. And uh, I remember reading in the big book 
of AA, um, the statement, being overly sensitive was one of our major faults. And I thought, gosh, do I have to get rid of that? If I if I get rid of being overly sensitive, I don't even know who I am. I thought that was one of my strongest assets. I didn't understand that. I knew I cried a lot. (laughs) But I didn't know that uh, I could change that. And that was a that was one of those experiences, and as I've had many since, that I came into this program thinking certain things were real positives about myself, and have come to learn that they weren't at all. That those positive things that I had grown up with, like being overly sensitive, were causing me a lot of pain, a lot of tears, a lot of unhappiness. Because if you go around like I did, getting your feelings hurt all the time, you cry a lot. And if you don't want other people to see you crying, you cry alone a lot. And if you don't want other people to see all your black makeup running down your face, you cry a lot alone at night after you've taken off your makeup. So I had worked out a pretty good plan for doing that, but it didn't occur to me till I came to Al-Anon that maybe this sensitive thing wasn't real positive. And maybe I could do something different. And maybe I had a choice about whether I kept getting my feelings hurt or not. But maybe that was something I was choosing to do instead of uh, turning it around and saying it was your fault and that if you didn't do those things and you didn't talk to me that way or give me those dirty looks, then I wouldn't be feeling this way. So it was a, a real strong message of, first of all, recognizing what I was doing. Secondly, deciding if I wanted to do anything different. And third, deciding, yeah, I think I do, and I think, and I recognize this is my responsibility. If I want to be positive and I want to quit feeling sad and getting my feelings hurt, then it's up to me to make the changes, and it has nothing to do with the people that I surround myself with. But the awareness takes a long time. And I don't believe that I would have gotten to the point of being ready had I not done all those painful things and hurtful things to myself, all by myself, before. I think it takes a real, at least for me, a lot of growth to decide I don't want to be hurt and I don't want to be going around angry and I don't want to go around resentful and I don't want to go around blaming everybody else for the way I feel because I don't like myself when I do that. I don't like myself when I do that. And that's the whole key to this, to me, to the negatives and positives is in terms of me making my decision of what I'm going to do and me following through without blaming it on anybody else. I don't think I would have ended up and I don't think anybody ends up in an Al-Anon meeting if what we're doing feels good. And we're happy and enjoying ourselves and, you know, kind of running through the tulips. I don't think we end up in these rooms. I wouldn't have. So that uh, coming in here and, first of all, recognizing that there was another way to do this. There was another way and that it all depended on me. 
Not y'all, not anybody else. I could get lots of support from y'all. But the changes come from me. And um, I cannot do it by myself. I recognize that. I don't even want to do it by myself anymore. <clears throat> that was another very strong message that I grew up with was um, you can do it. You can do it by yourself. You don't need any help. Just work a little harder. Just work a little harder. And I thought that was a positive attitude. But if you continue to work a little harder and you never get there, at least I had to stop and say, what's going, you know, what am I doing wrong? I'm doing, I'm working harder. I'm studying more. And I'm still not making straight A's. And my parents keep saying, you know, you didn't study. You didn't do this. You didn't, I think. But I did it. Don't you understand? And I still hadn't gotten there. I still hadn't gotten there. Maybe there's another way to do it, and maybe the way to do it, again, turning the negative message into something positive, is it is okay to ask for help. It really is okay to say, hey, I can't do it. I can't do this by myself anymore. Boy, I didn't want to get rid of that one. I have such an investment in being okay and looking okay and talking okay. And not admitting that I need help. I'm very willing to give it. But it's so difficult for me to ask for it. And for a long time it was even okay for me to identify what it was. Because it's hard to ask for something when you don't even know what it is that you're wanting. I've got, um, I've got some other things written down. It's about 8.30. Does anybody else... Well, I did. Um, Does anybody have anything that comes to their mind right now that they'd like to share? If y'all don't, I'll go on. Anybody? Okay. Well, let me tell you about... um, Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, 17 years ago, May 25th, 1970, I had my first child. It was a little boy. I was 22, healthy, and had good care. And um, it when by the time he was about eight months old, it was obvious that he wasn't, it was obvious to lots of people, it wasn't obvious to us, that he wasn't developing properly. He couldn't sit up, and um, that was the first clue that there was something wrong with him. When I would sit him up, he would just fall over. And, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but eight-month-old babies can, you know, they have pretty strong backs. This child, his back was like rubber. And um, by the time he was about two years old, it became pretty obvious he was, he did not walk until he was almost 18 months old. And he drooled. And he wasn't talking, which was our main concern. And, um, I had a wonderful pediatrician who reassured me that there was nothing wrong. As long as he could hear, there was nothing else we could do anyway. And, um, he kept telling me he was fine. 
And um, by the time he got to be two and a half, and he still wasn't talking, <clears throat> and he still wasn't, I was um, involved enough to know that other people's babies were doing things that he wasn't. And he was evaluated at the Speech and Hearing Center in Memphis, and we were told that, yes, he did have neurological problems. And um, he started right then as a two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old, having speech therapy almost every day just to be taught to speak. And um, that was uh, my first recollection, memory, that there really was something wrong with him was when he was about two-and-a-half. And... Um, we uh, went through all of the tests, lots of testing, and um, I was never given any kind of um, label. In fact, his pediatrician, who I, another pediatrician who specialized in developmentally delayed children, uh, said purposefully, we don't want to label him until he's at least five because the label will stick. And um, at the time, that was my first real um, what is, catastrophe, that's not even the right word, first real trauma, first real time in my life that this wasn't something that I could fix or that Daddy could fix or that anybody could fix. And I was just overwhelmed. And all kinds of questions and feelings and thoughts and how could this happen to me and how will I live this way and... Look at all these people that have eight and ten and bunches of children. Theirs are all okay. And just a lot of pity, self-pity, and um, lots of pain. And um, over the years, as I said, he's 17 now. <clears throat> I always, when, this, uh, when I was thinking about this topic, I was thinking about Brian and um, how, uh, how that negative has become a positive in lots of ways. I'm not going to, and I don't understand people that can stand up and say, oh, I just um, love my retired child and they're just so wonderful and I wouldn't give anything for them. I won't say that because I don't think that's true for me. But there have been a lot of a lot of positives that have come out of having Brian in our lives. And one of the things that um, I have finally learned to do with Morris's help is laugh at him. I didn't think it was it wasn't okay to laugh at him. He was not funny to me in the least, and nothing he did was. It was painful, and um, it was just a reminder of his imperfections. And um, as a small child, I had two other children younger than him, all two years apart. And as a small child, he was nothing but a drain, just a drain, in terms of. Um, physical, he, he physically could take care of himself, but in terms of um, socially, I could not leave him alone with the other two children because he'd kill them, literally pull, you know, the little, when they were little, pull their hair out and hit them if they touched anything of his. And it was just a real drain driving him back and forth to speech therapy and special schools and um, took so much time. I used to compare having him to having, to him being two kids as a little child. And for so many years, the only feeling I had associated with Brian was pain. Just pain. And um, I would listen to people talk about their kids and um, 
And I would uh, think to myself, they would complain about things that, you know, like they were too short or they didn't eat enough or things that just just seemed cruel. And I'd think, God, don't you know what I'm going through? How can you talk about that in front of me? But I never said that because, you see, I didn't want to be one of those people that you couldn't talk about your children in front of me. So I pretended that that was, you know, stoic, strong, no big deal. I can handle it. It's okay. And I got a lot of rewards for that behavior from people. I got a lot of pats on the back, which was um, really helpful to my need to be a martyr. Because I really did, you know, how do you, how does she do it? And she's so wonderful. And God, I couldn't do what you do. And, you know, that was just very ego boosting at that point. And um, he's grown up to be 17 years old. And um, he's not, I think I have finally come to terms with him just being a kid, who he is. I, I went through a long time of comparing what he was doing with what other kids his age were doing, and I don't have to do that anymore. Um, <clears throat> that was a real good way to feel sad, figure that out. But I've learned a lot of positive things from him, and I think we all have in our family. And um, yet, I still go back to what I started with. I would not have chosen him to be this way. And I would not have chosen this experience. I would much rather somebody else have a retarded child than me. Had I had a choice, but I didn't have a choice. And um, he's a happy kid. Morris says that all the time. If we could all be as happy as Brian, we'd be in good shape. And we've learned some positive things from him. I'll never forget... A few years ago, that uh, one of his favorite statements when we would tell him something was, I'm the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. And I would think, God, that's what I got Alan on to learn. Looking at my watch. And, um... I thought about that a lot, because a lot of times I'm not sure who is the boss of me. But he's quite certain about that. And um, we have finally been able to laugh at him and, and laugh about some of the things he does. And um, we haven't changed the fact that he's retarded. But we have certainly changed our attitude about what he does and how he does it. And, and, and that's okay. And you see, I didn't think that it was okay to laugh about anything that was that painful and that serious. I mean, this is serious business. And you don't laugh about Brian being retarded. That was a real strong message. Not directly. But if something hurts somebody and is painful to them, how could I laugh at it? And yet, that very means of laughing... And even laughing about him, what he does to him has been such a positive experience. And I think it's even been a positive experience for him. Although I do believe that the problems that I have had with Brian are my problems. They're not his. I look at him and he's a fairly happy kid. He seems to accept his lot in life quite well. And yet, I was hurting. And the people around him were hurting. But he wasn't. And I think there's a strong message in that. 
a strong positive message in that I can choose again that attitude. And whether I choose to feel positive about what's going on or negative, whether I choose to sit back and feel sorry for myself because I have a retarded child or decide to go on and do something else and accept what I get, what he does give, and he gives a lot now. He is my child that if I say, Brian, would you empty the garbage? The garbage is gone. Or my 12-year-old, will you empty the garbage, Greg? I don't want to. It's not my turn, and I did it yesterday. And um, that is so consistent, I can't tell you. He is so willing. Brian washes the van. I mean, it's immaculate. He vacuums. He mops. He'll, he's a terrific cleaner, and he never complains. He never tells me he did it yesterday. He never tells me he doesn't want to. He just does it. And there's a gift in that. And I think the gift is in being able to see that he may not have all those things I wish he had, intellectually, but he's got a lot more that perhaps we all miss, not just me, and what we decide is something to value, that there is value in him. In a, Growing up in a real achievement-oriented family, um, that was the measure. That was the measure, and if you didn't get that, straight A's and the good college and the graduate school, if you didn't achieve that, you might as well forget it because that was all that counted. And here this particular family gets this retarded child, and and I'm able to see that um, there are lots of other things to value. There are lots of other things that are positive besides that one yardstick to measure. And And I'm aware that that I do that a lot. I decide what's positive and what I want to reach for. And if I don't get there, then everything about me is negative. It's that extreme. And yet, I can look at, at Brian and I can see and that there's a lot of things about him that, according to our society, don't measure up that he won't be able to do. But there's a, there are a lot of things that he does do willingly with a smile on his face that contribute a lot to a positive atmosphere when you're around him. So I can't honestly say that that is a, that's a negative or that isn't a negative. I guess the whole, the, the, the main issue with him is that I wanted more for him. But perhaps I'll say that about my other two too. I've heard lots of other people say they want it more for their normal kids. And it isn't my choice anyway. I couldn't give a talk like this without mentioning him because he's been such a, um, you know, that just jumps out at me, the difference, when, when I think about positives and negatives. Um, and I try and keep in mind that through this program, I remember that I'm powerless anyway. And it was just an illusion that I could do something with my kids or make my kids do something anyway. And if there's anything, any other strong lesson I've learned from him is that we we do things, I do things, and you do things, and he does things the way that he chooses to do them with whatever it is he's got going at the time. And that isn't so different from the rest of us. That isn't different from the rest of us at all. 
it may be more glaring in him because a lot of what the rest of us take for granted or think is important doesn't come through with him. And maybe it is also the fact that, I, that we're not always looking. A lot of times I think I look for things that aren't positive, that are negative, instead of looking for things that are positive that I could feel good about. And there are plenty of them. And there are plenty of times that I can sit in an Al-Anon meeting and I can listen to angry, bitter, unhappy people who don't seem to have any grasp of anything positive or productive going on in their lives. And they continue to do that. And I learn a lot from those people because I know I do the same thing. But I also know that that's an excuse for me now. That if I don't want to move ahead and take charge of what's going on in my life and be responsible, I can sit back and I can think of all the things that have happened and the way things turned out that I didn't like and didn't want. Or I can do something different. And I liked what you said yesterday, Joyce, about um, choosing not to be a victim anymore. I think that's what you said. And I think that's turning and that's becoming a positive person and using a taking a cho- making that choice to have a positive attitude that um, I'm going to do something good for me today and take care of myself and and choose to look at things positively. Make that choice. And it's amazing how in- influential we can be when we do that. How many times I've thought back on school teachers that I had. And the ones that I loved weren't necessarily the ones that um, knew their subject that well, but they were the ones that I enjoyed being around. The ones whose class I looked forward to, the, the ones who I looked at and thought, this is somebody I'd like to spend some time with. And that positive attitude is a choice. It is a choice. And we can all make it if we want to. Doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. I am going to quit. And I really would like to hear from somebody else. (laughs) Read this page from the One Day at a Time book. It's September 2nd. And I thought it fit in pretty well with positives and negative attitudes. The time has come for me to realize that my attitude toward the life I am living and the people in it can have a tangible, measurable effect on what happens to me day by day. If I am expectant of good, it will surely come to me. Even the grace of courtesy gives rich, immediate rewards and warm response. Awareness of others, a tolerant, uncritical awareness, will gradually change my personality for the better. If I try each day to put my point of view and my attitudes on a sound, spiritual basis, I know it will change all the circumstances of my life for the better, too. I will see the results in the way other people respond to me and in the way my daily needs are met. Concern, love, and kindness on my part will be reflected in everything that takes place in my life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And I appreciate your responses. Thanks.
What experiences have you had that felt negative, but from which positive things came? Or what positive things did you think you had that turned out to be negative? Please share with us. You can call and leave a voice message at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website, or you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Join our conversation. Share your thoughts on Nancy's talk. I have heard over the last week from a few of you. I want to start with a recommendation from an anonymous listener. Hello. I would like to suggest a song written by a girl for her young cousin who cannot stop drinking. It's called Record Boy, and it's by the Josephs. I will put a link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 247. Thank you for that suggestion. Diana sent us a share about balance. Hey, Diana here. So I was going to talk about recovery, codependency, and balance. I was really tested in the last three months because my mother had severe brain problems and ended up being in ICU. The whole family was pulled in and we were trying to support financially and I was trying to stay strong for myself, my husband and my kid. During those moments, you know, you come together as a family and and it can be a beautiful thing, but it's also stressful. But I think the testing came in the imbalance side of it because what I've learned as a part of my therapy is, you know, one imbalance day and another imbalance day and another imbalance day literally leads to erect place. So every day, you know, we should be checking in and journaling about how do I feel? Am I frustrated? Am I overdoing it? You know, am I staying up till midnight for two weeks straight doing my homework? What is it within my means to do? And and I think even looking deeper into like, why am I driving as hard as I'm driving to prove something to someone because I'm not comfortable with where I'm at because I'm afraid or because I want to actually better myself. So it's all of those things. And you know, so I had this thing going on with the hospital and we were commuting and, and all that. And then, of course, I go to school full time and I'm president of spirit committee and I work full time and I have kid, you know, kid who's in um, sports and all that kind of stuff. And, and you got this whole thing going with life. And then it, you have to, in the middle of that, do the recovery thing where you're taking care of yourself, you know, even just 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, like me time get in the tub, listening to an audiobook, or going to the salon or getting a massage. And, and you don't even physically have to do those things. Sometimes it's just about being aware and stepping away and journaling and like, am I okay? Am I taking care of right now? Am I looking to things to fill me or am I nurturing and filling myself? What am I thinking on and who's surrounding me and what are the voices of the people that surround me saying, Am I looking to them to tell me who I am or do I know who I am? You know, do I rise and fall based on the opinions of others? You know, am I worn out, exhausted, or am I energized every day? And that's like a really good way to check in really quickly about whether your life is being a little bit imbalanced. 
I tend to be a goer and a pusher and a driver and I've always been that way. And in therapy, they, you begin to inquire into why do you do that? And a lot of times it type A personality, not always, but it's, it's anxious and fear-based driven. It's almost like you can't sit still because you got to constantly be doing something. And I think that's been the big thing in discovering who I am in this season is like, it's this miraculous discovery of like, my value is so intrinsic and it's not based on my degree or my title or what I do or what I bring to other people or how valuable I am. I think all those things matter, but my value is intrinsic just as I am. So it's like important to just be able to be fine and be at peace in those moments just by yourself with nothing, with silence. And I think silence is actually good for type A's. I know it like about kills us, but you know, my, my trust has been tested in this time and you know, you want things to just be fixed and resolved and done. And when you're dealing with neurologists, some of these processes are like, it's going to be years of rehab and recovering speech pathology. And, and so, you know, there's a patience to all of it, but for me, and I know a lot of people who listen to this identify with this, like my recovery is, is everything. It is a big, big priority in my life. And every day I'm checking in and I'm making sure every day that I'm rested and I'm feeling good. And I, every day have happy moments and then I'm paying attention to why I'm doing and what I like and the balance of my life and the relationships of my life and the conversation. Cause I think we create our life. Ultimately, we do have a lot of power in the boundaries that we set and the relationships that we create and the way that we speak to ourselves you know, it's, it's choices and consequences. Of course, I believe in God and faith and all that. And, you know, when you can't do it, it's like, okay, God, I need you right now. Cause I'm struggling. But for the most part, a lot of it is choices and consequences on our part. I'm close to 40 and I'm just different. I'm different. You know, my twenties, I would overdo and put up with so much and endure so much. I could sit here and tell you crazy stories at this point in my life. It's, it's not there, you know, it's self-care. It's making sure I'm all right realizing I'm not Superman. I've got to put on the cape and go save the world. Um, there are plenty of people that will rise to the occasion out there. And there is a God that we need to have faith in. And sometimes you disempower people by taking on their crap, doing the whole enabling thing. So the best that you can be is filling yourself up and bringing that positive light and energy to others. And that's where it's all at for me. Just wanted to share. I know there are probably other people out there who, who feel the way I feel. So Thank you for being my clan and, and for everything that you do, Spencer. I really appreciate you guys. All right. Take care. Thank you, Diana, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. I always appreciate it. Kelly writes with a topic suggestion. Hi, Spencer. I am a regular listener and have been a grateful member of Al-Anon for three years. I really appreciate you and your show. Thank you so much for your service. I'm in the process of listening to prior shows and have found them invaluable. I was wondering if you might be able to talk about advice giving. We say we don't give advice, and I understand that, but it is different when it involves a sponsor-sponsee relation. I hear people telling their sponsees what to do all the time, especially in the AA program. Is it different for Al-Anon? Sorry, I'm sure you've covered this topic before. Thank you, Kelly. And Kelly, I don't think we've covered it explicitly. Certainly is something we've mentioned a number of times. When I am a sponsor, and I can only speak from my own experience, 
I do my best to not give advice. I do my best to not tell my sponsor what they should or shouldn't do. But I do tend to ask very pointed questions when I think my sponsee perhaps is only looking at a situation from a single perspective. I try to maybe move them out of that perspective and and help them to see alternatives. And that might sound like advice sometimes, but I always try to let them make their own decisions because it's healthy for all of us in the long run. I might say, have you thought of, have you tried? Maybe you could try. And that's very close to advice. But I'd love to hear from you, my listener. Love to hear what you think about giving advice or how you don't give advice. And is that different in a sponsor-sponsee relationship? Thanks, Kelly, for that question. It does sound like a great topic for a show. Stephanie writes with a question. Hi, Spencer. I love your show. Thank you. This may be too late emailing you to even get an answer, but I'm chairing a meeting tomorrow and would love to share the fable or story about the old man whose horse ran away, then came back, then his son broke his leg and couldn't go to war, but everyone that went was killed, etc. And his answer was always, maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. I don't know. Do you know which episode I'm talking about? It brings up a lot of different topics for me. Perspective, gratitude, higher power, etc. Thank you. With gratitude for you and your service. Stephanie. And to be honest, Stephanie, I don't remember exactly which episode it was either. I do believe it was a speaker, uh, a male speaker, if I remember correctly. I do remember the story. In any case, there are lots of versions of that story online. I will put a link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 247. I also sent a link to Stephanie. Hopefully she was able to uh, to use it in her, her meeting. Amber wrote herself a letter from her higher power. Spencer, I just listened to podcast 246 about moral inventory. Before listening to it, I had the thought that maybe I would go back into the archives and pick one or more relevant to how I was feeling that day. Turns out that was exactly what I needed to hear. I have been dealing with anxiety lately. My guess is I have had anxiety for a while now. Peeling away the layers, I am now faced with looking at the anxiety created by my own doing. Your message that day reminded me that, in part, my anxiety has a lot to do with not feeling like I can make a mistake. I forget this simple message so often. I need this program to remind me that I don't have to be perfect. Your gift of this podcast is invaluable. I am so grateful to it and to you on a very deep level. Every podcast has changed my perception for the better. I wanted to share with you, and maybe you have already seen this, I do believe it is relevant to an upcoming topic, and I also think it is worth repeating. I addressed the letter to myself, and have printed it out to carry around in my planner to read at will. I've tried to read it out loud a few times, and I cannot. I get far too emotional. To me, this letter encompasses the message of Al-Anon perfectly for me as the parent of an addict. Amber, you want to hear from me about letting your son go. You are not abandoning him as much as it may feel like it. You are simply transferring his well-being from your care to mine. It was never my intention for you to direct, guide, and control his life. That is my role. Yours in the beginning was to love him, protect him, and teach him. You've done that. He was never yours to keep. To have peace, you must let him go. Your stubborn self-will only gets in the way of the plans I have for him. I know it is not your intention to interfere, but you are. 
You are not all-wise and all-powerful. You cannot remove this disease. You cannot love him to wellness. Only I can do that. You must trust that I care for your son's well-being. You must trust that I love him more than your humanly love. My thoughts, my ways, my plans are bigger than you can comprehend. Your lives are so short, yet you waste so much in worry and fear. Yes, your son may cut his life short. That is not my intention, but it is his choice. He must trust me also and seek to have a relationship with me. Only then can I work in his life. I will not force myself on him or you. I am more than willing to be involved in your lives, but only to the degree you let me. We both know what a struggle trusting me has been for you. You can't make it any easier for your son to trust me. He has to find me on his own, and he's doing that to the best of his ability. Let him do that. Get out of the way. Love him as my child, the way I love you. But let him go so that he can be himself, whoever that may be. We're in this together. You can come to me anytime to tell me your worries and concerns. I listen. I always have. But I may choose to be silent. That's my way of stretching you and growing you. I know you love your son, and I love you for that. But ultimately, he is my child, and I know what's best for him. Entrust him to me, and you will grow. You will find the peace you want. You have so much in your own life to focus on. Focus on growing yourself, and let me worry about your son. Loving you always, your higher power. Amber ends, by the way, I printed this out about a year ago. I don't know who has changed more, my 23-year-old son or myself. I have let go more, and he has taken control of his own life more and more. Thank you for sharing that, Amber. That is, wow, that's really powerful. And uh, I can see where it might be difficult to read it out loud. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Susan, Mary, Debbie, and Eileen did. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it. Whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecovery.show, or just listening to us. We are here for you. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not ask about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you, one day at a time.